Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am the youth director over at our Southwood campus. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Romans a lot, uh, if you want somewhere to turn. Uh, but we are going to be jumping around, so don't feel the need to keep up. It'll, it'll be okay. God will still love you. Uh, we also, uh, this morning, are about to gaze into the eyes of an amazing man whose name was Ernest Shackleton. Sir Ernest Shackleton to be precise. This man lived in the early 1900s, and he was a self-professed adventurer. That was his occupation, was he would adventure to places and experience them. Uh, One of his favorite places to go was Antarctica. Uh, He would, in fact, take three three or four separate trips to Antarctica, uh, one of which started in 1914, and he assembled a troop of 28 men, And they set sail for Antarctica because at that time, no one had really been to Antarctica that much. No one really knew what it looked like. There were no satellites, right? Google Earth was still like a year away. So there was, you know, they didn't really know what it was. And Ernest decided, I can't sleep at night knowing there's an undiscovered continent. And so he took these 28 men down there to chart it out. Uh, And on the way, they ran into some ice because it's very cold down there. And they they were so close. They were a few miles from Antarctica. They hit an ice patch and their ship got stuck in the ice. Uh, But Ernest said, you know what? I'm an adventurer. I can deal with this. And so he got everyone off the boat and they just hung out on the ice. They they set up camp and they waited for the ice to break up and to melt. So they just waited, waited, you know, played football and watched TV. I I don't know. They did stuff, right? 1914. So there's, I don't even think they had electricity back then, but they did something, right? Until 10 months later, the ice started to melt. And so Ernest said, well, this is great. So everyone got back on the boat. They said, okay, the ice is melting. And sure, it's been 10 months. It's a really long time. I have a crazy beard now. But hey, this is going to be really fun. We're going to finally make it to Antarctica. As soon as the ice starts to melt, their ship kind of breaks away. And they're like, yay, here we go. And then their ship sinks. And so suddenly, Ernest and his men find themselves with a couple lifeboats. And they're in the middle of the you know, ocean, it, very cold. And so they say, okay, well, let's find a, an island. So they go back to an island they saw previously and discovered, oh, it's deserted. No one is here. So they said, okay, well, I remember another island that's 800 miles away. Let's sail there in these little lifeboats. And so they get into their lifeboats, go to the other island that they knew was habitated by people. They discover, oh, we landed on the wrong side of the island. We now need to cross this giant mountain range to reach the village. I'm assuming there were some sort of trolls or dragons in the mountains because why not? How could it possibly get harder? And so they cross this mountain range and they find their way to this village that's filled with a bunch of natives that don't speak their language and that are incredibly violent and don't like them. Uh, And so in the midst of this turmoil, they have to kind of just set up shop and wait for four more months uh, until a rescue ship would come and pick them up. In all, 25 of the 28 men survived, which is amazing. 25 of the 28 men survived and they all got home Three years after they left. Three years after they left. It'd be like if you left church today to go home, but then it took you until 2015 to get there, right? That's a long time. Almost 2016, right? But it was, it was this crazy journey. And it was so mind-boggling about that. When I hear a story like that, when I read this story, I, I look at it and my first thought is, well, goodness, Ernest Shackleton is very, he's a tough guy, right? Like that middle part was throwing me for a loop. He didn't look that tough, but turns out he is, right? Second thought in my mind, why? 
right? Why? Why did that happen to him? Like, what, what did that sweet man do to bring about these events, right? All he wanted to do is go to Antarctica, walk across some ice, pet some penguins. That's it, right? That was his number one goal. And yet all of these horrible things happened to him on the way. Why? Why does this happen? And a lot of us, man, we're in that same situation. A lot of us have, you know, faced things like that. Maybe our ship got stuck in Antarctica. I don't know. Maybe there's adventurers here. I don't know. But we've all faced something. And a lot of times when we, whenever these hardships pop up, we always just say, well, you know, that's, that's just the way it goes. That's life. That's how, you know, that, that's, that's how we rationalize it. But, but I don't think that's right. I, I still have problems. And I think a lot of people in this world have problems, even though they say, well, that's just how it goes. In the back of their mind, they're thinking, but why? Why does that happen? I, I got a minor in philosophy from Texas A&M University. Uh, and one, yes. I'm assuming that was for philosophy. But we, <laughs> we had a great philosophy department at Texas A&M University. I loved a lot of my professors. One professor in particular was a great guy. Amazing prof, one of my favorites that I had uh, throughout my career at A&M. Uh, and one of the things I loved about him was the fact that he was so impartial, uh, which is very rare because you're talking about these issues and these you know, things and people have opinions. And it's very easy for those opinions to affect the teaching. But he stayed objective. He stayed in the middle and he, he just presented the facts to us, presented the arguments, let us decide for ourselves, except for one lesson. One day we walk into class, it was a huge room, auditorium like this, uh, and he, I just remember him standing up and speaking to us. And I actually found out, I just, I just spoke at Southwood an hour ago, and uh, they, I talked with someone afterwards who knew this professor, uh, because I, we always knew that he had some sort of handicap going on uh, with his legs, and, and we discovered that what happened was he got trapped in a kayak. Uh, he was off kayaking, I found this out literally an hour ago, uh, and he was kayaking with friends, a big adventurous thing. He got trapped underwater and the kayak got flipped until his legs were going backwards and they had to amputate him. And so when we were in class, he was always really stiff and we didn't really know why. And it's because he had prosthetic legs from here down and he'd had them for about 15, 20 years at that point. And when he stood up, he told us, we're, today we're going to talk about evil. We're going to talk about why bad things happen in the world. And as soon as he started talking, he just got fired up. And you could tell it was because he had gone through tragedy. And he brought up this question that stuck with me. He said, there's evil on earth. So God, if there is a God, he must either not care or not be in control. He says, which is it? And he said this over and over. He said, what, how could a loving God, a loving, powerful God allow evil? He says, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. That equation does not work. So he told us, look, if there's evil. He says, we recognize that. He says, but, so there's, if there is a God, if he exists, he either must not care about it or he can't control it. Those are the two options he gave us. You know, what's sad is that as you walk through life, if you haven't heard this question yet, you will, I promise. Because there are evil things out there. There's darkness in this world. And the world is so confused by it. They don't know why. And they can't wrap their minds around it. It's a great question. And this morning, I want us to be able to answer it. 
of how this God and how this evil can coexist. A few months ago, my wife and I used to live in a duplex. And uh, in this duplex, it was a very nice place for the most part. Uh, Never had any issues until one fateful day. We woke up, walked in the kitchen to make breakfast and discovered there were gnats. Okay, it's very small, uh, crawling bugs with little wings. They would kind of fly a little bit. Little gnats on my counter. I thought, oh, you know, big deal. You know, squish squish them with my thumb, feed them to my dog, you know, whatever. Like, get rid of the gnats. No big deal. But then I discovered that there were more gnats on the wall. And then I noticed that they were on the cabinet and I'm squishing them and my hands are getting covered in dead gnats. I'm like, what is going on? I noticed there's a trail of them leading into our pantry slash hot water heater room slash laundry room slash attic access because it was a duplex, right? Space is limited. And I open the door and discover there are gnats all over this room. All over it. Literally hundreds of gnats. And I look up and I realize that they're all streaming out of our attic. And they're, as they're streaming out and running through, I, you know, I'm terrified at this point, right? I'm turning to Susan. What is going on, right? Like, I, you don't even know how to respond. You're like, gnats, right? Just, oh, like, why didn't you let the Israelites go? Like, what's going on, right? Like, this is some sort of plague has struck our home. In gnats. And not only were they streaming out of there, because as I walked through my house, I noticed they were in my living room and in my bedroom and in my bathroom because they were pouring out of the air vents. Literally hundreds of I'm not exaggerating. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gnats streaming out of air vents, dropping from the ceiling. It was terrifying. Right? It was that moment in the horror movie where I expected to like tap Susan on the shoulder and she would just turn and like there's gnats like pouring out of her eyes. She's like, oh, right? Like, ah! Like, <laughs> the mummy cursed us, right? I don't know. Like something happened to cause this calamity in my home. And in that moment, Susan and I, what we, we didn't just, you know, stop and be like, oh, and curl into balls and cry, right? I mean, we did for a little bit. But then after that... What do we do? We got up, we got the vacuum cleaner, we got some poison. I'm probably covered in poison to this day because we started, you know, vacuuming them up. I was running around the house, like spraying poison just everywhere, right? Like just trying to kill him. We called the bug guy, right? And he came out like a week later, but you know, we, we had, we took steps to solve the problem, right? Cause that's what we do. As humanity, when we are confronted with a problem, we, we say, well, I'm going to fix it. Ernest Shackleton was told, hey, there's a big thing of ice down there that no one's really walked across. He said, well, I'm going to walk across it, right? When I'm confronted with an issue, I fix it. If it's in my power, I do it. So what's God's issue? What's his hang up? What's his problem? That's why people, when they're confronted with this, are just so confused. They say, well, it doesn't make sense. When I see a problem that I can fix, I fix it. So if God sees the world as it is right now, what's he doing? Why doesn't he fix it? What is he doing that is so important? What can hold him back? Because if we look in scripture, we know that God is powerful. We know that he is righteous. You see this over and over and over again in scripture. Psalm 7 tells us that God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day, meaning God is righteous, meaning he 
loves what is right and hates what is wrong. So he cares. Daniel 4, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God rules everything. He's in control. So what is stopping him from ending evil? Why does evil exist? As humans, we look at the problem, we think, well, you just, you take certain steps, right? You maybe just lay it out, make a pros and cons or, you know, something, graph it out, do something to fix this. And people have tried this. People will say, okay, well, well, what if God simply moved into humanity and changed us deep within? What if he, what if he altered our souls, our minds to where we no longer sin? What if he changed people? To where we would no longer do what is wrong. We would only do the right thing all the time, forever. Why doesn't he just do that? This doesn't work because of a highly scientific principle known as the granny enigma. Okay? Very scientific. Granny or granny enigma, if you will. Right? Now, the granny enigma states that any compliment, any praise received from your grandmother is just not quite as awesome as praise from a random girl in your hallway. Okay, let me explain. (laughs) My grandmother loved me so dearly that every time I saw her, my sweet Southern Mississippi grandmother would just look at me and she would just tell me how much she loved me and how much she was just so proud of me and she thought I was so tall and that's the best thing about you, right? I guess. She was just so proud about these different things that I did. She was so happy and she just loved my wife and she loved me and she loved everything. And, and she was so excited. And, and in those moments, what do I say? I say, oh, thanks, grandmother. Right? Like, mm, okay. Right? But that's how I'd respond. However, if I'm at school, right? High school, I remember walking down the hallway. Some girl comes up to you and says, hey, I, I guess I kind of like your shirt. You're like, oh. <laughs> you just cry, Right? <laughs> What? Thank you, right? You just, oh, you just float for the rest of the day, right? Because you're so jazzed up and excited by that. Why? Because your grandmother, God love her, she just kind of, she automatically loves you, right? For the most part, that's what grandmothers do. They automatically love their grandkids. So whenever she would compliment me, I said, that's great, right? But this random girl at school, her default automatic setting is to not care at all about me, Right? There's no reason for her to care. And so when I see her step out of that, when I see her willfully decide, I'm going to compliment you, suddenly, wow, the free will aspect is crucial in that situation. In the same way, if God came to humanity and just turned us all into robots, I would always love him. Our love, our praise would be meaningless. It wouldn't matter. Because it's just automatic. So God won't do that because it would defeat our, our purpose in this world. He, won't, he doesn't want to take that away. So, so what if, okay, so what if he just leaves our free will intact? Or what if he lets us make our own decisions when we want to decide? But, but let's say instead he just changes the consequences. Let's say that instead, whenever I make a bad decision, he just picks up after me. Right? So maybe I'm hanging out with friends and we say, hey, we should jump off the chimney. Okay. And then we climb up the chimney and jump off. 
right before I hit the ground while thinking, this was a bad idea. The ground could just turn into marshmallows. I'm like, whoa, soft and delicious, right? Like that would be within God's power. God could do that. He could alter reality in such a way that no matter what I do, nothing bad comes of it, right? Because we have this, so maybe people will still make bad decisions, but if he just picks up after us immediately, then it would be okay, right? That the evil would be gone. But unfortunately, this hits another scientific principle known as the puppy principle. Uh, my wife and I uh, adopted a dog a year and a half ago. And as soon as we got this dog, we realized two major things. One was that this dog is so cute, we need to take pictures of it and put them on Instagram, right? Like that was number one thought. Number two thought, this dog does not know how to behave in human society, right? It doesn't. We take it home. We love it. We cherish it. We're feeding it. We're, well, when I, we don't clothe it because that's weird, but we're giving it these things, right? And all of a sudden it repays us by going potty in the living room. And I say, why? Why, puppy? Why must you do this? Especially because we were house-sitting, so it went potty in someone else's living room. I, I know, I know. They might be here. I shouldn't have said that. But we said, why are you doing this, right? Why? And in that moment, we discovered this dog does not behave. It would, it would try to go potty inside. It would bark when it wasn't supposed to bark. It would whine when, at, at nighttime. It would try, when it got really excited, it would try to like eat your leg. And you're like, that's weird, right? Like we had to stop these things. So what we did was we disciplined her, right? Whenever she would try to do these things, we just poke her in the rib and go, no, no, right? Because that's what you do. You poke them in the rib or like, tap their nose or spray water, right? You do one of those things, kick them out the window. I don't know, but you do something to discipline this dog to where it understands, oh, I should no longer do that, right? Same thing goes with kids. Whenever you have kids, you have to discipline them because they don't know how to operate in society. No one gets mad at other parents for disciplining their kids, right? We all accept that. That is an important thing to do. When someone tells their kid, hey, stop punching that kid. This parent says, thank you, right? You don't say, oh, come on, let them live, right? Like that's not, that's not the response. You want people to discipline their kids, to train their kids. If God did not allow bad consequences, he would be a horrible father, a terrible parent. Because even though there would be no bad consequences, that means there would be no good consequences. That means that there would be no integrity or righteousness. We would never learn anything about honor and respect. We wouldn't learn those things because everything's always good all the time. So God, in his rich love and mercy, allows us to face these things. He disciplines us when we stray because he's showing us the right path because he's a good father. So, okay, so let's say he doesn't change the people. All right, let's say he doesn't change the consequences. All right, what my prof then brought us to is, okay, well, well, let's say he doesn't do either of those things. Why doesn't he just take care of the natural disasters? That's what, he all, that's what our prof always came back to. What about natural disasters? What about the uncontrolled events? Things that have nothing to do with the actions of humans. What about tornadoes? What about fires? What about disease? What about famine? So what about those things? He says, why doesn't God stop that? 
says, why does this God allow these bad things happen to good people, right? Children suffer in natural disasters all the time. He says, why does they, what have they done? He says, what, why? Why do these bad things happen to good people? But the truth is, is that when we look in scripture, we know without a doubt that there are no good people. That that argument, that question in itself is flawed because it's operating on the assumption that there are good people in this world and the Bible is clear that there are not. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. None. Paul is so clear. He's hammering home this idea that there is no good person in this world. It does not exist. It's impossible. And I think a lot of us recognize that. And honestly, you really don't have to look any further than little kids to see the intrinsic sin in our society. Just think of a small child. I have two nieces. One of them is one and a half and the other one is two and a half. And they are amazing. I love them so much. I was a jungle gym for one of them last night and it was exhausting, but fun for her, right? (laughs) I love them, but they are so selfish. It boggles my mind, right? Any little kid, you think about a baby, what do they do? They cry. They cry. That's all they do. That's all they do is cry. They cry and cry and cry. Even my one half year old niece, she knows a few ways to communicate. She knows a few words. She, she, her parents taught her some sign language. She knows this is more. And so what she learned initially is she would use more when it came to food. And so they'd put her in her high chair and she would say, ma, ma. Like, okay, you know, hold on Penelope, right? Because maybe, maybe her mom is getting something, fixing it in the, in the kitchen, about to bring it to her. But Penelope wants it now, right? She says, ma, ma, right? And just gets upset. She says, hold on Penelope, I'll be there. And it's like, ma, right? And she just flips out. She just starts throwing things and like lighting fires, right? Like she's just, she's going crazy because she wants her food now. Now. She doesn't care what you're doing. She doesn't care if you're busy. She doesn't care if you're in the process of preparing the food for her. I've seen my nieces multiple times. They're, they're covered in their own filth, right? They need to take a bath. They need a new diaper. Their parents will lovingly take these stinky, dirty little things and put them down and say, I'm going to clean you off. I'm going to give you a new diaper. And the baby the entire time just fights it. It's like, ah, no, kicking at him. I'm done. I'm done. All done. All done. That's what Penelope goes, I'm done. She's done. Says, I don't want you to take care of me. I don't want you to provide for me. It doesn't make sense, right? She's fighting against it because she's so self-absorbed because there's never a point where her parents will give her a new diaper and she just says, wow, mom, thanks for that diaper, right? (laughs) That will never happen. She will never tell her mom, hey, I know you got a big day tomorrow. I tell you what, I'm going to sleep all night. (laughs) I might wake up a few times, but I'll be quiet. Don't worry, right? That never happens. That will never happen because babies are so self-centered. They don't care. 
care about the rest of us. They don't. And what's so sad is that a lot of times you forget that that sticks with you all through life. Right? There are adults. There are junior high kids. There are college students. There are people in this room, pretty much all of us, if we're honest, that still have that little piece inside of us that says, yeah, you're, you're more important than some of these other people. You're more important than maybe most of the people in this room. What you desire, what you want is pretty important, right? We see it all the time. You look on Facebook and you will see a 12-year-old girl or a 60-year-old dad post the exact same vague, like, cry for attention Facebook statuses that are like, oh, I had such a day, dot, dot, dot frowny face, right? And you're like, what? Right? And so then a bunch of people comment, they're like, oh, what happened? Like, what? What? And someone likes it, and you're like, what? Like, that doesn't, no, like, what? And, it's, and just, you know, just this dialogue, and like, oh, my dog ran, you know, whatever. Like, these things happen. And it's because we think, oh, oh, I'm so important, right? Like, I matter so much. And we know that. We just, we just feel it deep within. And you know what? That's one. That is one incredibly small example of the ways that sin has completely infested us, completely changed us. Of the way that we are, there is no way we are good. The way that there is no fear of God before our eyes. This is us. It's all of us. Sin is so powerful that it infects everything that we do. It infects the world around us. When sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden, when God created this beautiful little place that was then destroyed by Adam and Eve, their sin, you saw it affect them. You saw the affect the decisions that they made, their self-image. It affected their marriage, their relationship with one another. It affected the world around them. God said, the ground is going to be hard now. It's going to be hard to survive, Adam. It's going to be really hard. You want to have kids, Eve? Guess what? That's going to be really hard now. Really, really hard. Why? Because sin broke it. Because evil is in the world. It's still here. And so when we realize that sin is so prevalent, when it's everywhere, this should scare us. This should terrify us. Early church fathers, uh, a guy named Irenaeus, and then later a guy named August, Augustine, uh, they, they termed or they coined the term original sin, meaning that there is just one piece that that came from Adam through his decision that affected all of us. They take that from Romans five, where Paul says that sin, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The Bible is clear that there is this one event, this one breaking. And because of that break, man, everything, everything is broken. Everything is ruined forever. And so it's amazing. It's amazing that when we are faced with this, a lot of times our response is, well, how could God let that happen? Right? That was my prof's issue. He said, how can this God allow this to happen? What's he doing? And a lot of us, if we're honest, man, when bad things hit us, when we're hit by those waves, our first response is, how dare this happen? I don't deserve this, right? What did I do to deserve this? Man, the Bible's clear. You sinned. You sinned. 
my wife uh, and I have been married for almost three years or a week away. And we have grown so much in our relationship with one another. We love each other and have discovered so many new things and, and passions and, and loves uh, about each other. And it's just, it's awesome. It's, it's amazing just seeing how the relationship grows and grows and grows. Uh, and, and within that, what I, one of the things I love about Susan uh, is that she has so much going on. She's a nurse in the emergency room. Uh, she worked all last night. She had a 12 hour shift last night and has had past few days in a row, has a couple more. And she still came and uh, listened to me talk over at Southwood. And cause she know, she puts me in a priority, right? She, she keeps me high up on her list at the top. She loves me enough. She respects me enough. She honors me in that way that she cares so much unless it comes to potato chips. <laughs> and that is when Jacob is no longer first. Uh, she and I, I have her permission to tell this. Don't worry. That's I had like a dozen people come to me after Southwood and say, did you, were you allowed to tell that chip story? Yes. It's okay. Susan loves chips. Second only to chips with French onion dip. Okay. That is the ultimate. When that is before her, nothing else exists in the world other than that bag of chips and that bowl of dip. And she will sit there and she will eat everything. Uh, you will put it in front of her and you'll grab a napkin and you'll turn back and it's gone. And you're like, What? Where's the plastic bowl? She's right. It's it's gone. (laughs) Gone. And because of that, she knows this, right? She's not in denial. She recognizes this fact. And so because of that, a lot of times we'll be sitting at a restaurant or at home and she'll be eating some chips. And at one point she'll, you know, like get a big handful. She'll go, okay, take the chips. Take the chips, right? She pushes them at me. Like I'm supposed to hide them, right? I don't know. She'll take the chips away from me. I say, okay. So I take the chips and I kind of put them an inch over done. I get right. Like, okay, mission accomplished. Good luck getting to him now. And then that lasts for about five minutes. And she says, "Mm, okay, I'm going to have a few more chips. I'm like, you sure? Are you sure you want more chips? She goes, yes. Yes. Give me more chips. Okay. And they're all gone. Okay. She just consumes them. All right. And without fail, many times, whenever she does eat more chips than she originally was planning on eating, uh, afterwards we'll be sitting there, right? Maybe going to bed, brushing our teeth or something. And she'll say, why did you let me eat all those chips? <laughs> Why did you let me eat all those chips, right? And suddenly, I'm this horrible <laughs> enabler, right? Like, I'm, I'm out there, like, taking these big old bags of chips and just, like, sneaking them in front of her. I'm, hey, you won't eat these chips? You know, I, I don't know. Like, I'm doing something where I'm, in, I'm making her eat these chips. And she says, Why, why'd you make me eat those chips? I'm like, Susan, you, you made the decision. I promise, Right? But the thing is that a lot of times when we hit stuff like that, man, that's just, that's how we react. We're like, well, it's uh, your fault, right? Whenever bad things hit us, we think, well, uh, God, why'd you do that? Right? We, we already made the decision. We say, you know what? I am going to make my choices. I'm going to kind of live this way. I, I want to do things this way. God, I know you have this other way, but nah. And so when I go this way, eventually I hit pitfalls, right? I hit a bump. And suddenly I say, oh, God. What's the deal, right? Suddenly I'm indignant. I'm mad at the God who the whole time was telling me, hey, come this way, come this way. No, don't go that, no, bad. Don't, don't eat that. Oh, now you're sick, right? Like that's, God's doing that the whole time. And you see that continually through scripture. 
You see this God who is continually going to his people and saying, please follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. And it's not because he needs us, right? God can exist great without us, okay? He does not need us, but he desires us. He wants us. And you see in the Old Testament, when we think of this big, mean God, in the Old Testament, he tells the Israelites, I want you to follow me for your sake. He says, because it's better for you. Deuteronomy 5, 29. Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God is saying, I want you to follow me because that's what's best. Because this world is broken. Because there is evil and darkness and I am the light. I want you to follow me. Because it's best for you. Over and over and over again, God asks this of his people. But over and over again, they fail. We fail time and time again. Why? Because of that original sin. Because we live in a world of consequences. And because of our decision to sin, the consequence is death and slavery to that sin. And God recognized that. So he said, you know what? I know that you cannot follow me on your own. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my son to earth to be both God and man, to be this perfect high priest for you who will go out into the world, who will live a perfect life, who will deserve all of the blessings that I've promised for those that would follow me. He's going to deserve all that. He's going to earn it all. And then I'm going to kill him. And that death will pay for all of your sins, for all of your unrighteousness, for all of your strayings. And then if you trust me, if you just trust in his name, if you call out for me, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you recognize that this is a sinful, broken world, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ who came and died for those sins and then rose again to prove his power over them, if you are willing to trust that, to accept that, God says, that's all you need. That's all you got to do. Then you have life. Then you have the solution to this problem. That's all it takes. Because God knew there was no other way to defeat this evil. That's why he sent Christ to die for us when we were still sinners. Knee deep in sin turned completely away from God, yelling how much we hated him. We didn't want to follow him. In that moment, God sent his son to die. And because of that death, what's so beautiful, what Paul lays out, that if because of that one man's sin, trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is five verses after what he said about Adam, about how death entered the world through this one man. Then he says, but guess what? Also through one man, righteousness. One man, life. He says, God fixed the problem. The solution is here. It's just a matter of you trusting him. So when we're faced with that question, when I think about, man, there's evil on this earth. Does God not care? Is he just not in control? I can know based on scripture that God must care because he died for me and he must be in control because that one death miraculously 
just, we can't even fathom everything, how it works. It somehow provides salvation, eternal salvation for everyone who believe on him. That's amazing. So the better question, our question for the world around us, when we see people struggling with this, our question for them should be, hey, will you trust my God? Even though there is darkness, even though there is evil, will you trust my God? Because he's beaten it. Christ said that he had overcome the world. He beat it. Will you trust him? This is a God who has given good things to bad people. Not the other way around. So will I trust him? And if you haven't dealt with that issue in your own life, I would challenge you this morning, please do. If you maybe have friends or relatives who are struggling with this right now, I pray that you would just really think about this issue. Create some sort of idea. You know, think, look back on some of those scriptures. Think about how can you answer this, right? Because this is a huge question. Again, we will be facing this question over and over and over again. And what's really sad is that a lot of times we don't just talk about it in theory, right? I can stand here and talk about, oh, like, what about this? And what about this, right? That's great. But what happens when my friend's brother dies in a car accident two days ago? What do I do to that? What happens when your relative gets cancer? Or, or some tragedy strikes. They lose their home. Their husband leaves them. And what do you do in those moments? That's not theory. It's life. And it's hard. Our entire culture right now is consumed with the events that took place in Connecticut. Everyone is talking about this. I had so many conversations with relatives, with friends, with the lady cutting my hair. All these different people want to talk about what this thing that happened in Connecticut, right? These families, these 20 families that lost their children in a tragedy. What do you do with that? What do you tell those people? It's hard. It's so hard because when we see these things, our culture flips out. Our culture goes crazy. That's why all the news is covering it. All the talk shows are covering it. Everyone's always talking about like, why? What happens? What should we do now? What, should we, what rules should we put in place? What laws should we pass? What should we lock? What should we do? You know, what, what do we need to do to fix this? Because our culture, whenever something like that happens, it's a wake-up call. And suddenly everyone in the world remembers, oh, wait, not everything's great. Everything is broken. That's what they realize. Because our culture is so good at only convincing themselves, no, everything's great, everything's cool, I don't need God. And then, boom, some huge tragedy, and they all just, they just lose it. They go crazy. Because it's irrefutable evidence that this world, that humanity is broken. And they don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to fix it. That's why as believers, these moments are amazing opportunities for us to stand up and tell them, guess what? This world is broken. That was, that guy was evil. These things that are happening are evil. And it's because sin is in the world and sin is in me and sin is in you. It has infected all of us. And nothing will fix that. No law, no regulation, nothing that we pass will ever get rid of sin. The only solution to this problem is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's it. 
And if we can stand up and say that, people will listen. I promise. People will stop and they'll say, wow, I guess that makes sense. Because this is the only answer to this question. Jesus Christ. And we don't only have great opportunities when these things occur in the lives of others, right? Not only am I able to speak love and speak truth into people's lives when I see them suffering, but when I suffer, I have another opportunity. When I get hit by some tragedy, when my family member gets sick, when my relative dies, when I get in the accident, when I lose whatever, I have an opportunity to not just tell people about my faith. I have a chance to live it out. I have a chance to show them with my actions and the way that I handle this tragedy. I can show them how amazing God is. I can show them how powerful Jesus Christ was. When we look in scripture, we see the man Job. If you know the story of Job, his family was killed. His entire livelihood, animals and crops and everything was destroyed. Home ruined. His body was ravaged by a horrible disease. And in the midst of that, his friends come see him. And they say, Job, you're doing something wrong. They say, either you're doing something wrong, or God's crazy, or maybe the God that you're worshiping is the wrong God. Maybe you need to worship a different God, Job, because this is the wrong God. Because there's so much tragedy in your life, Job. There's so much evil that I see in your life. There's, you've got to do something to fix it, Job. There's got to be something you can do to fix this evil. And what Job says to them, what he stands up and says, is that though God, though he slay me, I will hope in him. This is our example. When the waves of life are crashing against us, this is our mantra. This is our creed. This is what we believe. This is what we tell the people around us. This is how we live our lives. That though God may slay me, though I may be tested, though there may be evil and trials, I will hope in him. I will count these trials as a joy, as a blessing. Because I know that God has a bigger plan. I know that God is in control. I know that God loves me. And I know that this world is so small and that this world will end so quickly and that there is an eternity of life for those who trust on God. There's an eternity of joy and peace for those who put their faith in the one solution, Jesus Christ. So man, as this new year rolls up, I I promise you that you will face evil in your life, in a loved one's life, it's going to hit. So I would encourage you to think about these things. Think about how you can respond to those that you know are suffering. Think about how you can respond to the suffering in your own life through prayer and seeking God, staying connected with him, trusting him. Think about these things. Prepare yourself because if they're not with you right now, they will come. And these questions will arise. And we've got to be ready to answer like Job. So let's pray. Lord, again, we are grateful for what you have done. God, we are in awe of your power and of your love. God, we count ourselves so fortunate 
that you stepped into our sinful lives and offered life, offered salvation. Lord, we pray for those that we know that maybe we saw over the break that have not yet put their faith in you. Or maybe they, they placed their faith in you a long time ago, but God, they're just not walking. God, they gave up on it. Lord, we just, we pray for those people. We pray that we would be shining lights in the midst of that darkness, that we would be people that point others to you above all other things. Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of all this evil, you are good and that you have a plan. God, help us remember that today this week, this year, God, for the rest of our lives. God, help us trust you. Praise all in your son's name. Amen. All right, we'll see you guys next week.